Hey, y'all. I'm Tinbidermius, and this is NPR's Book of the Day. Today, two books about how languages evolve and what that change tells us about ourselves. In a minute, we'll hear more about the new book, Like Literally Dude, where linguist Valerie Friedland delves into the quirks of the English language and why some people don't get the props they deserve for helping it evolve. And like, I'm already obsessed. But first, something I wasn't obsessed with in middle school was having to read Beowulf. I know, I know, it's canonical and all that good stuff, but I remember having to fight with the page just to make sense of Old English, and I was having none of it. Hanavai Dean, however, was drawn in and has made a career of trying to better understand Old English and the medieval culture that produced it. She writes about some of that in her new book, The Word Horde, Daily Life in Old English. She spoke about it with Weekend Edition host Aisha Roscoe, and in this chat, Vaidin places Old English in context by talking about how it was used in daily life. And in doing so, she introduces us to a few new words, and even some familiar ones, and makes the language sound really interesting. But don't get it twisted. I'm still not rereading Beowulf. Here's Aisha Roscoe. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Ah, the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. You know those word-of-the-day apps to expand your vocabulary? Well, our next guest has an app highlighting words with a twist, like wrath mode, as in super angry, or link to adult, as in Spring disease. I mean, you know, look, these allergies have been killing me. And what about saying things are changing for the better? Just say warp. Hannah Vidin is the old English word horde. She fell into the language of spell studying Beowulf as an undergrad, then got her PhD in medieval English lit. And we reached out to her to learn a little bit more about this language. Hey, Hannah. Hi. So can you give us some context? What's the span of time covered by Old English and what kind of text use it? Sure. Yeah. Old English is the vernacular language that was used in England, what is now England, between around 550 to 1150. And most of the texts that we have are from around the 10th century or later. And they include all kinds of different things from poetry to homilies or sermons to prose texts and medical texts, all kinds of things. And so you've got a book out. It's called The Word Horde. So give me an example of a favorite word that you have. Well, word horde itself is a favorite word. 
And it sounds a bit like it's a, a dictionary or a thesaurus, but it wasn't a physical book. It was a poet's stockpile, mental stockpile of words and phrases that they could draw upon when they were mm. performing poetry. And I really like that idea that you would keep these all in your head and and take them out when you want to share them with others. Often I find I don't have a very large word hoard, and that's part of the issue that I <laughs> that I face. And just like all language, there's a level of specificity with some of these that can be really beautiful. And one that spoke to us, because we do get up really, really early to think about the news and, and report it to everyone else, is a word that basically translates to pre-dawn anxiety. I'm going to um, try to pronounce it is it Otsiru? It's Utchara. <laughs> Utcharu. Okay, Utcharu. <laughs> well, everyone who speaks old English right now is yelling at the radio. <laughs> who was having this pre-dawn anxiety back in medieval times? Yeah, Utchara actually appears in a poem and it's called The Wife's Lament. And it's about this woman who is has for some reason been separated from her loved ones. And I think it's beautiful that it's connected to a particular time of day. I think that's something you can really relate to today even, even though there's not a word for it. Because I don't know, I wake up at three in the morning and worry about things and... <laughs> It's the perfect yes. word to describe it. <laughs> Some of the words that we use today are actually the exact same as Old English. And I was surprised that snot <laughs> is one of them. Because <laughs> I guess that's just universal that has gone through time. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I find it really funny that a word that we don't have anymore is snotor, which actually means wise. It's actually a, a like a, a nice thing to call someone is saying that they're snotor, but snot itself does not sound nice. So, yeah. <laughs> of course, this is fun. And of course, you see how language changes. But like, is there a bigger takeaway that you hope people will take out of this? What I think is really great about studying Old English is there's so many familiar words, but they're also really strange ones that have fallen out of existence. And once you start digging into both the familiar ones and the strange ones, you start to learn something about what life was like at the time for people. And I think it's really fascinating for any time period. Like that in Old English, the word for enemy is unfriend. So it's like unfriend. And today unfriend has become a verb that we use in, for social media and stuff. But we don't talk about our unfriends anymore. <laughs> but it seems like it's an old word that would actually be quite relevant now. Quite useful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hannah Vidin's book is The Word Whore, Daily Life in Old English. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This next book takes a present-day look at how the English language is evolving. And, like, it's a really cool story. In her new book, Like Literally Dude, linguist Valerie Friedland examines what some might call linguistic faux pas. 
using lots of likes and ums, or using a vocal fry. Friedland wants us to see them not as transgressions, but transformations, part of a beautiful evolution that, she points out, is spearheaded by women. She spoke about it with Here and Now host Robin Young. Here and Now listeners who love language, and judging from your notes to us, that's a big crowd, listen up. You know that word that you hate, like? Like, you really hate like? Well, it's actually an important discourse marker. It's not going anywhere. Or when someone uses literally when the thing isn't literal, hey, bad now means good. Awful used to mean filled with awe. So get with the times. Same thing with ums and vocal fry and dude. Our next guest says all are part of a beautiful evolving language. Linguist Valerie Friedland takes a deep dive into the history of words. Her book is like literally dude and she joins us now welcome thank you and you said my title so beautifully i love your intonation (laughs) well oh thank you and this is our sandbox here we just love this so start with literally uh someone saying i was literally out on a ledge over something when they were nowhere near a ledge i think it's even banned in the npr style book and you write about a bar with a sign in new york Yes, there was a bar in this with a sign in New York that said if you used literally figuratively, you might as well just leave. And we are really upset by people that use literally figuratively, which is funny because there's so much of language that we use figuratively without realizing that it once meant something different. So for example, something that might be relevant to NPR, the word broadcast in the 1850s Do you have any idea what that meant originally? Throw seeds out. That's exactly right. To throw (laughs) seeds. I'm impressed to throw seeds out. But now it means to disseminate information, a metaphorical extension of its original use. And we just want to take a second because, as you are saying, there are those who think literally can only mean in the actual exact sense. For a demonstration of that, we turn to the great linguist Weird Al Yankovic. Just now, just now, you said you literally couldn't get out of bed. What? That really makes me want to literally smack a crowbar and your stupid head. Everybody's saying. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so there's someone who's outraged by it. But you say literally has become an intensifier. What is that? Intensifiers are words like completely, absolutely, horribly, or the well-worn, very, and really. Basically, they help boost or amplify what you're trying to say. And they add that little extra oomph so that people that are listening to you know it wasn't just your everyday average event. It was something a little special. When you use literally as an intensifier, you're basically using it as a degree word, very much like very. And very had a very different meaning back in the old English days where it meant true or actual pretty much the same way literally does Mm. for us today. Mm. But it has semantically bleached over time, meaning it's gotten removed from that original meaning and we don't remember when that happened, so it doesn't bother us. Literally is still in the process of doing that and that's why it bothers us. Oh, it's fascinating. Um, As is, um... Which I just said, in getting ready to say, um, I said, um, you call this a filled pause, an um or an uh in a pause. You say this is not nothing. It is signifying something, something complex is coming or a new topic. And both the speaker and the listener unconsciously know that that's a, a signal. 
Yes, I think um and uh are the most underrated speech features, and we work so hard to get rid of them. But I think we haven't really looked at what they're doing for us. They signal when a speaker is doing some very heavy cognitive retrieval. So uh or um seem to appear more often before hard words, um, more less common words, also abstract words, or very, very complex sentences. So that's a pretty good indicator that someone's working hard in their conversation with you. And you back up all of this with tons of research that people have. But I want to move on to a third rail, if you will. So let's touch it. It's vocal fry. (laughs) So hated that the public radio show This American Life devoted an entire segment to the letters they got complaining about women and their vocal fry. Here's Mickey Meek. Uh, Her sound just outraged listeners. She'd never experienced anything outside the church. And she basically checked out on Will and the Kids. On Will and the Kids, going down at the end of the sentence. Well, vocal fry is a funny feature because when it's been studied in the past, and that means before the 2000s, it was actually looked at as a feature that was more predominant in men's speech rather than women's. And it was generally associated with being higher status and carrying authority and weight. But flash forward to the 2000s where we see it mainly talked about in women's speech and it's become an epidemic, which is something that was never used to describe it when it was associated with British men, which is where it seems to have started. But vocal fry is actually an attempt by women to please the naysayers who don't like the high-pitched, squeaky women's voice, long described as shrill or high-pitched or squeaky, and especially in broadcasting. So it seems like this idea of vocal fry being a negative thing only occurred when women started to adopt it to slightly lower their pitch to come across as more professional and authoritative. It's sort of like you can't win. You write about how women's voices have always been more policed than men's, but also that Women and young people in general tend to come up with these changes in the language, and they are not thanked for it. Absolutely. If we look at research on who leads in language change and has historically, not just in modern speech, we find one recurrent trend, that it's young people and particularly young women that lead in language change, not just in the changes we don't like, like literally like and vocal fry, but in changes that have come to be the language we all speak. So for example, moving from ye to you, saying things like does instead of doth, my instead of mine in like mine eyes. These are changes we've all embraced, and that seems to be what happens over time. The problem is that we also culturally tend to disfavor women's voices and have historically. So this underlying cultural prejudice or bias we have about women's voices, particularly in professional spheres, affects how we view the features that they bring into language Mm -hmm. and affects how we see them as contributors to English. So it's unfortunate for women that they happen to be both culturally not well accepted in certain places, but also innovators in language, so they get more notice for that as well. A notable exception, though, to all of this is the word dude, made famous in films like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and The Big Lebowski. Here in that film, Jeff Bridges and Sam Elliott. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. The dude abides. You do the history of so many of these words. Uh, The word duty? (laughs) Actually, what led us to dude? Explain. Yes. Can you imagine if instead of calling each other dude, our adolescent children called each other duty? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they'd be quite so popular. The funny part about dude is it actually comes from Yankee doodle 
dandy. It's a fusing together of the doodle and the dandy. And it seemed to have first started surfacing as duty that then got shortened to dude. I just want to spend a minute on the singular they to describe someone identifying as non-binary. Now, this isn't about whether or not there should be a word for people who are non-binary. You all for that, but it's a discussion of which word is chosen. And many were tried before they. Hundreds were tried before they. And I think people don't realize that. The reason they has been successful is it was an organic development in language. And we find, if we look back through the history of language, that it's almost always an organic development that leads to new words being adopted. It's sort of like Klingon. You can't just enforce it and say everybody should speak Klingon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not going to happen. You need to have something that users themselves create because it meets the needs that they have. And that seems to be what they has done. It has done it when it was part of the worthiness doctrine in the 1600s that he was supreme and more worthy than she. People started to say, okay, well, that's okay if you want to think that, but I feel invisible and I want to use they instead of he because I feel I should be seen in this language. They had those discussions as early as 1600. Mm. It's now sort of shift in who we're referring to with they, but it's the same underlying motivation of why people have adopted a pronoun that already exists in the language. And I think what we forget is that you has changed drastically over the history of English, and you used to refer to plural only and only in object position, and now it can be singular or plural and in subject position, and that happened organically as well. Mm. So we can't force language. It has to evolve on its own, and sticking in weird words that we don't recognize or feel any any empathy with is not going to ever be the organic development of language that they has become. That's Valerie Friedland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada. She also writes a language blog on psychology today, Language in the Wild. Her book is Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Valerie, thanks so much. Absolutely. Later, dude, I think is the only appropriate way to go off. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Tim Bidermias. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Milton Guevara, Rina Advani, Lena Mohammed, Courtney Dorning, Gabriel Dunatov, Dee Parvaz, Fernando Naro Roman, Matthew Sherman, Lennon Sherburn, Shannon Rhodes, Emiko Tamagawa, and Todd Munt. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. 
learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.